I think you push the edge, you know, in sport. I think as you get older, you get more experience. You, you learn to deal with situations perhaps slightly differently. But, uh, of course, you know, you're, when you're competing for Grand Prix victories, you're always on the limit. Uh, and if you're on, not on the limit, you won't be winning. So um, it's just getting comfortable with living your life there. And uh, as I say, I think experience helps with that. What gives us our edge? And how do we go beyond it? How thin is the line between taking part and tipping into victory? What inspires those moments of rare advantage? that change the shape of a race? Are winners born or made? And what happens when things go wrong? Or when it all goes right? Welcome to The Edge. We'll be talking to people operating at the very edge of possibility. From athletes to actors, and from artists to entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Theo van den Bruecke. Watch out. This is The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. Hi, Christian. Uh, wonderful to have you here at The Edge. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, how are you? Very good. Good to, uh, good to be here. Good to see you all. Obviously, um, crazy times, but hopefully the end is in sight. Absolutely. So you're, you're just back from Bahrain, um, where you've just had a very successful test period. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was the, uh, the pre-season testing. So three days, the shortest pre-season you know, we've ever had the same for all of the teams, but uh, it was a good um, three days for us. Uh, we're split between the two drivers, you know, Max Verstappen and Sergio mm -hmm. Perez. And um, I think we recorded the fastest time on the first and the last day. I managed to achieve quite a lot of laps as well during the three days. So, of course, very difficult to read into form at these tests because you don't know what power levels people are running, what fuel loads, what car weights. Um, you know, are and Mercedes always uh, sandbag somewhat during uh, winter testing. So it's only when we get to the first race that we're really going to see, you know, where we are. But as far as our own preparation has gone, we're quite satisfied with the way that's gone to date. Fantastic. Very, very exciting. Looking forward to the season ahead. Um, so Christian, I guess before we, well, not before we get started, as we get started, I think it would be a good way to begin by you kind of explaining how a little, uh, a little bit how you got to where you are, how you became the principal of Red Bull Racing, um, a role which you've inhabited for now 16 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it would be kind of great to get a kind of short potted history of, of how you got to where you are. Okay, well, I, I started life uh, originally as an aspiring young driver. I raced in, in karting in the UK. I won a scholarship from Renault to move from karts into car racing. I raced in, in Formula Renault, winning races in that category. In Formula 3, I drove for, for the Lotus Formula 3 team. I then moved up to uh, British Formula 2. And then after that, what is now the FIA F2 Championship, I didn't have enough budget to drive for, for one of the better teams. So I thought with a, with a sponsorship that, I'd, that I had, I would create my own team. Um, and uh, that's what I did with a couple of mechanics and engineers and off we went racing, um, initially with one car and then I had a teammate join me. 
And I quickly realized that you had to choose between whether you were going to be a driver or a team manager and, you know, running a team and driving for it was, you know, was impossible. And, and my driving talents were, uh, shall we say, you know, modest. Um, so I decided that I would step out of the cockpit, but concentrate on building that team up, which I, which I did over the next few years, um, winning the championship in the category just below Formula One for three years uh, in succession. Um, and then uh, obviously as Red Bull bought into Formula One, acquiring the Jaguar team, I, I was looking at making a move into Formula One. Bernie Eccleston was encouraging me uh, you know, potentially to do it with my own team, but uh, I um, obviously was intrigued with what Red Bull were doing and uh, Helmut Marko and Dietrich Mateschitz uh, approached me. Uh, I was only 31 years of age at the time um, to come on board as team principal as Red Bull Racing. And, um, and that's what I did. And the rest, uh, the rest is history. But uh, yeah, I started life as, a, as an aspiring driver and, and here I am far away from the cop. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder what a kind of decision that must have been for you to make. Because obviously, you know, we, for everyone who watches Formula One and engages Formula One, it's all about the driver. It's, it's very much about that kind of, that position. Um, was, it, was it a hard decision for you to make to move out of the cockpit? Uh, or, or did it come quite naturally? What was the kind of process? It came pretty naturally in the end, because I think I recognised, I was honest enough of myself that you know, I was a respectable driver, but going up against, you know, the best, uh, you know, some of the best drivers in the world that were coming through at the time, the likes of Juan Pablo Montoya and 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 other drivers that were going on to to Formula One and Le Mans racing, that I, I um, you know, recognised that I wasn't at their level, and uh, I was honest enough with myself to say, look, you know, I enjoy the sport. I don't want to get a proper job. Um, I'd like to focus on, you know, working you know, with the team, using the experience that I had to having driven for, you know, for good teams and not so good teams in the, in the past and build a team how I would have liked to have driven for a team. And that's what I, I focused on doing, um, you know, with the Arden team in, uh, in the understudy category to Formula One. I mean, you were incredible, as you, as you just said, you were incredibly young when you became a team principal. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the youngest ever team principal um, at that time. Um, how were you accepted into the fold? Was it, I mean, obviously you'd been around Formula One for, for, a, for a time before that, but how, how was it? Were you, um, did you have to kind of earn your standing? Was there competition? Were, were people, uh, do, do, do you know what I mean? Sorry, I'm not expressing this properly. Um, how was the process of being enveloped into the fold of Formula One as the youngest principal at the time? Well, of course, when I came into the sport, um, into Formula One, you know, 31 years of age, I was considerably the youngest guy at the table. And there were some iconic, you know, big characters. You know, Bernie Eccleston was firmly running the sport, you know, with Max Mosley at the FIA. You had Jean-Ton running uh, Ferrari. You had Ron Dennis at McLaren, Frank Williams. Um, even Eddie Jordan was still around. And there were some formidable, you know, opponents and characters, the likes of Flavio Briatore, uh, Paul Stoddart. You know, they were, they were all there. And, um, you know, they didn't suffer falls lightly. Uh, and, you know, it was a matter of earning your earning your stripes in many respects. And uh, I think that, you know, I've never let age be a, you know, something to judge you by. It's age is just a number as, 
if you were at the young end as I was or at the other end where Bernie Eccleston was. It's how you conduct yourself and what you do um, that, that really matters. And I think that, uh, you know, it was fascinating seeing those guys, you know, in operation and the compare and contrast to today is very, very different because they were effectively all entrepreneurs. Um, and, uh, but it was fascinating and, you know, I held my own ground and did my own thing and stuck to the principles that had served me well in my, uh, team in, in formula two. And, uh, yeah, it worked out okay. <laughs> this is a bit of a question that I'm springing on you, but were there any specific moments that um, really kind of taught you a lesson that you've gone on to, to take into your further career um, when you were that kind of young, young gun coming in to the game? Well, I remember some of the early meetings. There used to be a meeting at Heathrow Airport prior to the season. It was called a Concord meetings at the time because it all related to the Concord Agreement. And all the team principals came together and there was not a single item on the agenda that anybody agreed on. Nothing was achieved. Um, it was basically a two and a half hour argument um, that, that Bernie was masterfully conducting. But at the end of it, everybody agreed what a fantastic meeting it was. Um, and, uh, and, and that's how it was to continue. And, uh, you know, Bernie was uniquely qualified to, uh, achieve exactly what he wanted by com- creating as much chaos as he as he as he possibly could. And uh, I remember coming away from that first meeting thinking, you know, we've achieved absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that was the dynamics of, of, of Formula One, and um, not much has changed since. I mean, obviously Bernie's no longer there, but uh, sometimes we attend these long meetings. I'm not. I'm in doubt as sometimes what they do achieve. A certain affable chaos by the sounds of it. Um, I, I, it would be interesting to talk a little bit about your kind of successes, um, I guess your early successes um, as team principal. What was that first moment where you kind of thought, wow, I've really achieved something extraordinary here? Well, I suppose, you know, in the early days outside of Formula One, it was winning the championships in, in Formula 3000. I remember winning the, the support race at, at the Monaco Grand Prix and in those days, you used to get um, prize money um, that uh, was awarded at the event. And so I was given an envelope of prize money. Um, and I thought, I, I need to buy something to commemorate this, this first victory at, uh, at Monaco. And so I, I went to the watch shop at, the, at Nice Airport, and there was a, a tag watch that caught my attention, uh, the, the, the Monza edition. Uh, even though we've been at Monaco, I couldn't afford the Monaco edition. Um, and, um, and I bought this watch um, to commemorate um, winning that race. And I still have it to this, to this day. So that was, I guess, early on. But the first major moment in Formula One was obviously winning our first Grand Prix um, with one of the cars you know, behind me at the, uh, the Chinese Grand Prix in, uh, in 2009. Absolutely. I mean, I think I've seen you wear that watch um, in the in the F1 series that you've just um, been been involved in. And watch, having watched that series, it really struck me that the process. It seems that the process of building a successful Formula One team is kind of analogous to that of building an F1 car. Everything has to work in harmony and at the highest level. And if things aren't working, then they need to be replaced or kind of souped up. Is that a, is that a fair analogy? Is that something that is that a way you think about it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, Formula One is the biggest team sport in the world. You've got you know close to 
800 people all having to work in harmony with each other across 22 different departments. And I think that, uh, you know, Formula One is the epitome of teamwork because what you see at a Grand Prix is only the shop window. Mm. Uh, you know, the engine room is behind the scenes. It's back in the UK, back in the facility, in the factory, and, you know, here at the Red Bull campus. Oh, sorry. It'll just jerked a little bit. Um, yes. Okay. So, um, Unlike other teams in F1, it's well known, obviously, that Red Bull doesn't manufacture its own engines. Does that um, increase the workload? Does it increase the pressure? Or conversely, does it kind of give you a freedom to select the elements that you want and have a little bit more of an editing process as opposed to that kind of, you know, overall pressure of creating? How does, how does that dynamic work? Well, in the previous um, 16 years, we've always been a customer um, mm. with different engine um, partners, and we currently have a great partnership with Honda um, that uh, is entering into its third season. Unfortunately, it's the final season. Of course, we've had decisions to make for the future. What do we do? Do we continue to be a customer or do we take our destiny into our own hands? And uh, that was the decision by the group to, um, you know, to go it on our own, to bring the engine here in-house, to integrate it fully within to, uh, you know, the... The, the chassis into the organization. And that is tremendously exciting on one hand and slightly scary on another because of the scale of the, of the challenge. But I think we've managed to demonstrate on the chassis side to produce a competitive car against some iconic opponents. And uh, I see no reason why we can't by applying the same methodology, the same uh, approach to do the same on the engine side. So does that mean you're having to kind of completely restructure the internal kind of company in terms of the people that you're employing and creating new workshops. I mean, is it, is, it must be a massive kind of, um, if not overhaul, then recalibration for the way you operate. It's a significant um, development for us. It's the creation of a new company, Red Bull Powertrains, um, and uh, based and located here on the campus, but it's a significant investment, probably the single largest investment that Red Bull have made in in Formula One, uh, in a new facility, um, state-of-the-art equipped with uh, the latest uh, dynos and uh, simulation equipment. So, um, and of course, we have to be ready for 2022. So it's uh, a race against the clock as well. For you personally, does the challenge of having this new element to your role, overseeing this, is that exciting? Is that something that you kind of relish? It is exciting. It's a new challenge. It's... Uh, something where we take in control of the future, you know, of uh, mm. uh, making sure that we've got the most competitive engine, the competitive people, the right people, the right tools, the right infrastructure to go uh, and, and create competitive engines to challenge for future world championships. Sure. Uh, you've kind of just touched on this, that obviously Formula One is a shop window, but behind that, behind the scenes, is where most of the action happens. Um, and having watched the show it kind of really comes to light and that sense of pressure um, that is on you really is is palpable. And, you know, you're as much a star of that show as the drivers are. And it also feels quite dog-eat-dog, -dog, to, be, to be honest. There's a, there's a real kind of um, push and pull, which you get a sense of. And I know that's obviously the drama created by the show. Mm -hmm. um, but how, how do you deal with that? Is that something you enjoy? Is it is it something that you kind of have had to learn to manage? Well, Formula One had a nickname of being called the Piranha Club and <laughs> got that name for, for a reason because there's a few piranhas out there. Um, and of course, 
you know, it involves, it's hugely competitive, it involves huge amounts of money. Um, you know, it's high, high stakes. And I think that uh, it's a very, very competitive business, very competitive industry. And, um, but you know, for me, it's about the racing on track and, you know, the rest of it is a necessary evil in order to get to a competitive position, you know, on circuit. So, um, you know, I've just stuck to my own values, which have served me well over the years. And, I will continue to do so for the future. How how have you personally found the increased exposure? Because, you know, we talked a bit at the beginning about you kind of gave up being a driver to move into being the principal. And although obviously you do have exposure in that role, a great deal of exposure, a, a show like that kind of um, takes you to another audience. Is that something that you've kind of enjoyed? Is it something that um, detracts from what you're doing? How, what's, the, what's the dynamic? Well, I think that, you know, Grand Prix fans, you know, worldwide, wherever we go, we get a tremendous reception. Um, but that's been very much focused on, you know, the core fan base of Formula One racing. I think, you know, the the show and the Netflix, um, you know, edition have really taken Formula One to a broader audience. So I, th- I think that's what you notice is that there's just a more broad audience and visibility that, you know, Netflix have brought to, you know, to Formula One and some of the challenges and more behind the scenes rather than just on, you know, at the circuit racing. So it's it's an interesting dynamic. Um, it's not one that I pay too much attention to. Uh, and particularly in the current world, we don't see anybody anyway. So uh, it true. hasn't changed my life too much. <laughs> I mean, in on that topic about kind of expanding the audience of Formula One, was was that part of the reason why you wanted to get involved with it? I mean, is that need to bring Formula One to a new audience very much present? Um, what, what's the what's the route to that? Well, I think it's been a great asset for Formula One because it has reached an entirely new audience, both in the US and across different generations as well. And of course, what it is doing, it is effectively it's promoting the sport, some of the characters, particularly the drivers. And uh, of course, then to to see how those drivers are performing, all those teams, um, you have to tune into a Grand Prix. And so it's brought a new following, you know, to the sport, which is, which is great to see. And I think Formula One has never been as popular as it currently is, you know, globally. And I think, you know, the Netflix show has uh, certainly played a role in that. As much as there are clear rivalries between the principals, um, there also are obviously very clear rivalries between the drivers. But it seems to me that it's kind of less between drivers of different teams and often drivers in their own teams. Is that something that's kind of stoked to make them work harder and push harder? Or is it just something that happens naturally in your experience? I think, I think it's just something that happens naturally. I mean, the word teammate is a fallacy. <laughs> um, you know, your teammate, the two drivers, they have equal equipment and they're the only two on the grid that have the same tools at their disposal. So inevitably they're measured against each other. So, you know, one driver will ultimately come out on top. Um, and of course the driver that you're being constantly compared to because of the similarity of equipment is your teammate. And so they will make or break your career to a, you know, to a degree. So, um, of course there is that intense internal rivalry, but of course they're also there to fulfill a role for the team. Um, because the most important championship for us, ironically, is not the driver's championship, which is where the prestige is, mm. but from a monetary point of view, is the constructors' championship, the team championship, which both drivers' points count towards. Uh, and that's where we need the drivers really driving on behalf of the team. 
Um, I, one of the things that you say in the in the show that really struck me was how you know you th this is a this is a drinks company and you operate you have operated in a very different sphere and you've come into this game but you've come into it incredibly strongly it's quite extraordinary when you think that you're up against traditional manufacturers do you feel very proud of that that you've built this incredible thing i mean i personally feel like you should <laughs> well we're constantly looking forward forward rather than backwards so it's only when you come into a room like this and you see some of the historic cars and it's a relatively short history. In 16 years, you know, we've won, we've managed to win quite a lot. Um, you know, four consecutive double world championships, driver and constructors between 2010 and 2013. And in pretty much in, in each of the years since, we've been probably the co closest competitor to Mercedes, winning races in every season apart from 2015. So, um, you know, but you're always looking forward. You're never looking over your shoulder. It's always about the next race, the next season. Um, and you rarely get time to reflect on, on, uh, on last year or, you know, the last year. So, um, you know, we tend to be forward facing and, and constantly looking at addressing and taking on the next challenge. We should talk about then the forthcoming season. Um, how how are you feeling about it? What are the, what are the biggest challenges? What's the obviously we know what the aim is, um, but how, what's the what's the general mood? How are you feeling? Well, there's always a sort of a nervous anticipation and excitement about heading into a new season. It's like back to school, and you know everybody turns up with their new cars and new uniforms, and away you go again and see see how you fare. And you know, we've had a good preseason, so that has increased the the expectation and the excitement surrounding this year, but we're still mindful of the fact that Mercedes have been absolutely dominant the last seven years. So uh, we make no um, bones about it. We've got a huge mountain to climb, but it's going to be a long season. It's a tough season, particularly the second half of the year. 23 races around the world um, is is brutal for the, for the traveling staff, but... Uh, it's something that, you know, the racers in us thoroughly enjoy and it's the competition. We've got great drivers. We've got a great team. Uh, we've got formidable opponents. Um, and it's going to be, I think, season of all seasons this year, uh, particularly based on what we saw in uh, recent testing in Bahrain. You must be very excited for things to start back up as they were. I assume you were. I mean, it's a lot of traveling. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 did you miss it last year? What was the, what was the kind of, um, how did you feel having that kind of hiatus? And are you desperate to get back into it now? Well, this time last year, we were just about to go into a 65-day lockdown, unsure of what mm. the future or rest of the year looked like. So that was a bizarre scenario where, you know, we were sat in our homes um, trying to plot a championship and Red Bull played a key role in that in the first two races, but getting the championship up and running again. And the teams collectively worked hard together with the promoter and the governing body to get a 17-race championship up and running. And that was, you know, with the challenges of traveling around the world with, with COVID and restrictions, you know, that was some undertaking. And of course, now we embark on a full championship year, um, again, with the challenges that, that COVID is uh, you know, presenting. Um, again, has its has its challenges, and usually by the fourth or fifth race, you travel around the world at least a couple of times in in, in air miles, and uh, uh, you know it is a busy busy schedule, particularly the second half of this year. Where hopefully, you know, we're going to see more and more fans returning to the sport, um, able to watch sport live across the globe. 
what is it not like not having fans there to watch it what's the what's the mood does it change the the way that the sport operates did i just you know i'm talking about this having watched certain other sports where they've had empty stadiums and and you just get the sense that the kind of sense of purpose isn't quite there anymore does it feel the same it's very weird, um, particularly in the build-up and the aftermath of a race, that you know the crowd make the atmosphere and the noise and the vibrance and the energy from the crowd. As soon as the lights go out, though, and the, the focus is on the cars, you'd, your focus is just on the race, and it, it becomes you know, secondary. And then when you get to the end of the race, and if you've had a good result, it's, again, it's slightly bizarre going to a podium, a bit like at a indoor go-kart race um, where there's just you and your team stood around the podium and, and the drivers, you know, stood up there. So I can't wait for the fans to come back. It's, you know, the reason that we exist, uh, the reason that sport exists globally. And uh, the sooner we can get fans back in the grandstand, you know, the better. How do you feel that the last year's season will be remembered? Will it, will it kind of be a blip that people will want to forget? Um, you know, is it going to be taken as seriously in the, in the kind of great canon of Formula One? I think it was a success for Formula One. It showed the dynamics of Formula One that's able to adapt and, you know, to keep a 17-race world championship uh, at venues around Europe and, and the rest of the world last year was a phenomenal achievement, mm. particularly introducing circuits that we'd either not been to for some time or never been to previously. And there were some great tracks that were, you know, that were introduced last year. So I think, you know, 2020 was a tough year for everybody. Uh, but I think Formula One, um, you know, was a shining light um, in sport in that, uh, you know, amongst that pandemic. Mm. I mean, before we talk about your personal approach to the sport, um, we, we kind of just touched on the fact that you have some very serious competitors. What, we will have covered this, but what is it about Red Bull that makes you stand out? What is it that gives you the edge and makes you such a viable competitor? I think it's the spirit that exists in the team. We are a race team. That is who we are. That is our DNA. Um, we're not trying to be something else. We're here to go racing and try and win Formula One Grand Prix. And I think that you know that competitive spirit runs through the business it runs through the whole team and uh people are proud to work for you know for the team it's not a job uh it's not a nine to five job it never has been and never will be it's uh you know everybody has to go that extra mile particularly when you're taking on the might of mercedes or you know other automotive manufacturers or you know giants of the sport like like ferrari so you know, we're still relatively young at only 16 years um, and what we've achieved in a short space of time has been, has been impressive, but we're hungry to do a lot more. And, um, you know, it feels like we're on the verge of, uh, you know, picking up some winning momentum again. So you personally, Christian, I mean, what is it that you love most about Formula One? What is it that keeps you coming back day after day that gets you on those flights that, that takes you through? I love the competition. I love working within a team, within a close team environment of getting the most out, you know, of a team. Um, I enjoy working with the drivers uh, and the, the sport. You know, I'm most of all, I'm a fan of the sport. I've been a fan of Formula One since I was a kid and that still remains, you know, in my heart today. And, you know, you have a competitive drive in, uh, you know, within you that pushes you on and, you know, winning is very much addictive. 
And once you've tasted it, you just want more. And uh, you don't want to let that go. And it, it hurts when you don't, but it focuses you on to, uh, you know, focusing on where you need to improve. And when you do manage to win races or ultimately championships, you get a real sense of, of, of satisfaction of everything collectively coming together. Do you, you think you could, that anyone could um, be successful in this business without being a really competitive person? I think you've got to have a drive. You've got to have, you know, be motivated. Um, and, uh, you know, there's many different characters. So uh, I can't talk for others. I can only talk for myself. But, you know, that's what motivates and drives me. I, I found it really interesting watching the way that you interact with the drivers, um, with Verstappen, and how you kind of instill that sense of competition in them, but also what you must sense in them to know that they're going to be successful. You kind of, the way you talked about some of them, there was this kind of idea that there was something in them that made them um, automatically ordained to do well. What is it? What is it that you sense in a driver that's going to make them truly spectacular? I think you can see with, you know, with young drivers that have got a lot of talent that they, they share the same, first of all, raw ability, um, inner confidence, and hunger, you know, most of all, they need to have that ambition. They need to have that belief. They need to have that desire. Mm. And uh, that's a common trait between, you know, all successful um, drivers, certainly that we've seen through our, you know, the investment in our junior program. Um, so obviously, you know, you've had a lot of achievements during your time at Red Bull, but perhaps away from the titles and the wins that are kind of the obvious, obvious achievements, is there something in the last 16 years that really stands out for you as a, as a kind of moment of achievement that you feel incredibly proud of? Oh, well, outside of the sport, obviously, you know, it's family life is the most important thing. So, you know, your children obviously uh, are at the top of your, the list with your family. Um, and, uh, you know, the sport can be tremendously demanding on time. Um, but, uh, you know, it's important to find a balance between family life and, and working life. How do you find that balance? Um, with difficulty sometimes because this business is so demanding. Um, but I'm very fortunate. I've got an understanding wife and um, my children don't know anything different than uh, the job that I'm, you know, have done their entire lives. So, um, yeah, you know, with a lot of understanding, but you're making sure that between Grand Prix, that when we do get downtime, we do get family time, that it's, uh, that, that we make it, make it count. And, uh, uh, you know, that I'm, that I'm very much present and, um, obviously, uh, try and enjoy as normal a family life as we can. Do you, um, do you see yourself doing this forever for the rest of your career is there any, what 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 else would you be doing if not i have no idea what i'd be doing if i wasn't doing this job um <laughs> that uh i enjoy what i'm doing uh i'm still relatively young i'm still extremely motivated so you know long term in this business is about three years um so so who knows what the future holds but i don't have any uh, intention of doing anything differently, certainly for the foreseeable future. Um, we just touched on family slightly. What what would you say, if there are any, are the parallels between between being the head of an F1 team and being a father? Well, sometimes, you know, needing to take a fatherly stance with the drivers um, can be quite similar to being with the children. Um, but uh, no, I mean, look... Um, 
I think that when I first came into the sport, um, my drivers were older than I was. Now I'm old enough to be the driver's father. I raced against Max's mum, who was a very competitive kart driver. Um, so, uh, yeah, the dynamics have changed, but you know, you don't see them as, as, as younger or older, as I said, it comes back to your earlier question that I think age is irrelevant. It's how you handle yourself, how you hold yourself. And, and, uh, yeah, you know, that's, uh, age is just a number then. But do some of those qualities, so, you know, that drive, that eagerness, that belief in self, can that also be something that works against those drivers? You know, do you, do you see though, because there must be a kind of crossover because to be that single-minded and that kind of focused, it could, you know, maybe, I don't know, does it, does it impact in different ways, in negative ways? Um, difficult to say. I mean, you know, the drivers are tremendously motivated. They're, they're you know, very single-minded. You have to be pretty selfish to be a, a successful sportsman in any, any sport. Um, and that obviously has its, uh, you know, have its has its downside as well as its significant upside. So, um, but that's just a challenge, not unique to Formula One to any to any highly competitive sport. Um, what would you say has been the biggest challenge or unexpected challenge that life has thrown at you thus far, and in turn, how did you overcome it? Uh, there's challenges every day, every every week, um, and I think to overcome it, you first we have to understand it. And you just have to apply yourself. And I think, you know, worry about the things that you can control and not the things that you can't. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, take things one step at a time. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, you're never going to build Rome in a day and, and you've just got to go piece by piece. And I think that that's the same with any challenge that we face, you know, within Formula One is first of all, understand what that challenge is, what your weakness is, and then, try and address that and build on your strengths. Um, you, you strike me as a very kind of calm person who, who doesn't seem to get riled. I mean, this podcast is the edge and we talk about kind of people operating at the edge and the extremes of what they do, which you certainly do. I mean, you're operating at the highest level in Formula One. Um, what is the moment that you felt most closely pushed to your edge? I think you're pushed to the edge, you know, in sport, I think as you get older, you get more experience. You you learn to deal with situations perhaps slightly differently. But uh, of course, you know you're when you're competing for Grand Prix victories, you're always, you know, on the limit. Uh, and if you're on, not on the limit, you won't be winning. So um, it's just getting comfortable with living your life there. And uh, as I say, I think experience helps with that. Absolutely. Um, so obviously, there's this proposed um, shift to sprint race qualifying. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on that, Christian? Well, it is different, and you can argue it takes away from the DNA and the tradition of the sport. But I think we have to we have to try some of these initiatives because otherwise, how do you know? Um, and I think it's an interesting dynamic introducing a effectively a pre final on Saturday, so qualifying on Friday, and then a, a pre final race on Saturday um, at three Grand Prix this year, Silverstone, Monza, and uh, and Brazil. I think they're all interesting venues, um, potentially something to gain, potentially if you're running at the front, more to lose. Um, the chance of incidents or weather or other dynamic reliability coming to play. So I think it could be fascinating and could, could stir things up a bit. And I think, 
you know, it's uh, something that we're embracing as a team and keen to see how it how it works out. Um, you just touched on a few of the kind of fabulous locations where the Grand Prix take place. Which is your favourite and why? Uh, there are many iconic circuits we go to. I, I've always loved racing in, in Melbourne. You know, you've got the glamour of Monaco. You've got the fact that I can stay in my own bed at the British Grand Prix. <laughs> um, you know, Singapore, another iconic race. Spa, a real driver's circuit. Japan, another real driver's circuit. Um, so there's, there's so many, you, you know, venues. It's hard to pick out one, that, but, you know, usually where there's a big atmosphere, big event, you know, Montreal being another one that, you know, really stands out. Which, which when you were racing, was your favourite? I mean, I know you didn't do the big, necessarily all the big venues, but where was your favourite place to uh, race I when you drove? Fair few, I raced at Monaco. That was, that was something very special. Um, Silverstone was always a track that was a big challenge as a, as a driver. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, and Spa, so they were probably the big three. Do you collect cars? I, I do. I have a modest collection. A modest collection. Can you, can you, can you maybe talk us through or, t- or tell Elise which is your favourite in your collection? Um, no, I got a, a, a 1964 uh, AC Cobra, which is a, a, a great car, which, you know, it's, fun to drive it's very basic it basically was a uh a, a race car and i think anybody that's watched the the recent movie um about uh, ford versus ferrari gives you an insight into into some of uh, the history of those cars so um that's that's probably my one of my current favorites and I, I guess we know in a kind of macro sense what the, your schedule is like given you know we know the formula one um, uh, season roster, but what's a day in Christian Horner's life like? What 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 do you do? How is it structured? I mean, I imagine it must be quite How full on. Well, it, it usually starts about six thirty. I get up. I like to you know go for a run in the morning, start the day, sort of get all the endorphins going, um, and then um, yeah, if if it's possible, I'll drop you know one of the children at school. Um, and, uh, you know, make sure, you know, obviously I'm in the office. Um, it's long days, a lot of meetings, a lot of zoom calls at the moment. Um, uh, you know, various briefings and so on. Um, and it's obviously how you utilize the time between Grand Prix that needs to be very efficient because then obviously there's an awful lot of traveling and what I do. Uh, and then once you've got a Grand Prix again, it's very regimented with the briefings, the meetings, the uh, the media sessions, the the actual running sessions. So the, the the weekend is very regimented from start to finish. Right. So do you ever actually get any downtime? Usually on a, uh, a Saturday night after the park ferme comes in, you know, we get to have a, a bit of downtime where we get to have dinner locally. So, uh, which is always nice to, that's about the only glimpse you get of the local environment other than the hotel um you know in the circuit on the and the car on the way to the circuit so uh yeah saturday evening is if there's not a sponsor commitment or something is a chance to to grab a dinner um and uh you know be pondering your thoughts for the grand prix the next day 
with with all the traveling that you do it must make going on holiday abroad not that appealing a prospect do you, is, is holidaying in your house kind of a thing <laughs> yeah I, you know I, I enjoy being at home I, I i enjoy the countryside you know we have a lot of animals that are uh you know house in the countryside with horses and dogs and donkeys and you know you name it so um so for me uh peace and tranquility is you know is being at home fantastic christian horner thank you so much for joining us at the edge uh you've been a great guest and it's been wonderful to talk to you and good luck with the season ahead very exciting thank you very much indeed thanks a lot thank you for joining us at the edge a podcast by tag hoyer Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Edge is also an online magazine. Go to magazine.taghoyer.com for more articles, interviews, and photo series that bring together our love of watches and our desire to push ourselves to the edge of our limits. I'm your host, Theo van den Broeker. Until next time, keep an eye out. This is The Edge. Before we meet again in our next episode, a final message from Red Bull. Hi, I'm Max Verstappen. This is Sergio Perez. And I'm Paddy, host of Talking Ball, the official Red Bull Racing podcast where we bring you unrivaled access to the team. If you'd like to know more about what goes on in a Formula One garage, what's new with the team, or stories the drivers don't usually tell anyone else, search Talking Ball wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe for free so you don't miss any episodes from us. To find out more, visit redbullracing.com.